Oh, I don't need a microphone. How about that? Can you guys hear me back there? Oh, yeah. All right. What? Oh. What? Yeah, I <laughs> Okay. Now, Barb, if Bob needs to lift up that voice, just tell him to, right? All right. <laughs> She's going to throw at you, Bob. <laughs> well, we are in Chapter 7. We're dealing with Stephen. This is uh, the last section that we're going to be dealing with this great man of God. I mean, this is uh, a great example of one who, I guess, literally burned out for the Lord, and he was glad to do it. Uh, What a great sermon it's found in Acts 7, and what spurred that on was the fact that um, Stephen had been preaching and teaching and they had had enough, at least the rulers had. And they said that he blasphemed God, that he blasphemed Moses' law, and he blasphemed the temple. And all those are three strikes, you're out. They already had their minds made up. They put him into court. They were the court. But I don't think there was really any kind of justice going on. I think they already were going to do it. They went through formalities, and I think it turned really into a mob scene where they uh, went out to stone him, and they did. Now, I think after you look at history of the church, you look at this first martyr case in in the New Testament outside of Christ, after the time of Christ, this is the very first martyr of the church. The very first one recorded here, we get to get a lot of insight on what's happening there. And after looking at when people have given their lives for the cause of Christ, I think we can come to the conclusion God gives a special grace to them in their dying moments. Now, there can be different ways that He does that, but I, I think of Jan Hus, the, the Czech martyr. And, of course, there's a statue in, in Prague, but he was a promised safe passage by the Roman Catholic Church uh, that they wouldn't go against him. But they did. They betrayed him. They burned him at the stake. And he died not cursing at them, although they had deceived him and although they had brutality, the way that they killed him and all the things they did there. But what did he do? He sang praise to God as the flames consumed his flesh. Now, that's an incredible story. And that's kind of one of the pre-reformers. And I think you could call him a reformer, really. Um, and of course, he was bringing the Word of God, the Gospel of uh, Truth to the common man. And, uh, of course, we can think of a lot of different martyrs down through church history. And, of course, many of you have read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I'm sure, and read some uh, horror stories. But really, it's... Uh, Ultimately, we know it's by the grace of God and the glory of God that is done there ultimately. When we look at uh, Stephen, uh, like we say, this is the um, really the only death scene and martyrdom described in detail like this in the New Testament, really, with this much kind of detail, except for Christ. Um, so I think there are things that we can learn out of this. Uh, We'll uh, try to get at least four lessons out of it here tonight. But whatever we suffer due to our faithfulness, whatever that may be, uh, remember that we're rewarded with that ultimate 
eternal acceptance that God has for us and it's encouragement and you know that He will use any service that you have here on earth for His glory. And uh, He rewards that. And um, so that's that's what we definitely had to look forward to. But uh, hopefully we can draw some things out of here tonight. Um, I think we're going to be starting somewhere around um, verse 54 and kind of work into chapter 8 as we uh, look at Saul there too because he's part of this. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your greatness. Your holiness is beyond comprehension. Yet, You've revealed that holiness. May we grab just a little bit more of it as we study Your Word. May we see how sovereign You are in Your plans. Even when it looks like the enemy is winning, we know that Your perfect plan according to Your will, Your purpose, is going to come through the way that You have planned it. And so when we look at it from Your perspective, it works out for good. Always good. And so we take this example of Stephen. And may it drive us a little bit deeper into our own lives of desiring to serve You more heartily. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's uh, let's start at verse 54, Acts 7. We, we've dealt with the thing where um, he gives a testimony, he gives background history, all of them knew what he was talking about, and of course he defends and what he believed. He talked about he believed in God, he believed in the law, he believed in the tabernacle, but actually those things, like the tabernacle, the law is fulfilled through Christ. So he brings it to the ultimate of really what it is. He makes Christ shine in this whole thing. And as we pick it up in verse 54, after he has told them that they are stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart, and they're always resisting the Holy Spirit. He rips them with what was true, and and, uh, they are uh, not repenting. They should have been convicted and desired to repent, but they're convicted to kill Him. It says in verse 54, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, And they began gnashing their teeth at Him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears and rushed at Him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses lay aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. 
some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So this is what you do with the believers. We don't put them in jail anymore. Let's go out after them and let's kill them. And uh, this is this is what starts it. And guess who's there? Saul is there. And we back up a little bit. Remember, this is all about God's purpose and His glory. When you look at His perspective, then you realize that we're not losing here. This is how God is forming the church. But it sure looks like a backwards way, doesn't it? Paul, um, well, first point here really is when we are for Christ, there are wicked people out there we know who do not like Christ. They hate Christ. They hate God. And so if you speak about God, especially if you speak boldly and against sin, against evil, you will suffer. And of course, I think a verse that we're familiar with, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12 Satan doesn't uh, sit idly by just letting things go Um, whenever things are happening. He's uh, there. Whenever he's challenged, he's uh, ready to tempt people and uh, turn people more against God. He blinds them. We know Second Corinthians 4 says. But God, in His mysterious, sovereign, providential way, is doing His plan, and He doesn't always miraculously protect His own. He could very well have protected Stephen and kept him from being stoned. Jesus many times could have been killed. Remember, He just walked out of their way. It wasn't His time. This was Stephen's time. And um, so God doesn't always protect in that human earthly way. We look at the human way a lot, don't we? But when you realize it, you look at God's side, He says, this is the way that I want it. Because I have other things that are going to come out of this. And we can see that being shaped up. If you look in a sovereign way, you already know what I'm going to say, don't you? But um, he allows this choice, I would probably say a, a young man, to be cut down in the prime of his ministry. What an impact Stephen has been making in synagogues and in Jerusalem. And you go, this is the kind of guy that God needs. Actually, he doesn't really need any of us. But he decides to use us. I think that's a miracle in itself that he would use broken, sinful people, make them Christians, and then have them serving. I think that's incredible. But here it is. This this man is uh, really, for God, quite a standout. And you see a contrast here between God's kind of people like Stephen and people who hate God. And what a contrast it is. I mean, here you, you see these wicked people and... and uh, and they are actually respectable Jewish leaders that are doing this. Can you imagine a Supreme Court doing some of the things that they're doing here, gnashing their teeth and yelling and they're angry? That's uh, usually not an example of a, a court. 
And here's Stephen, who is the one who's going to be killed. Nobody's favoring him, at least from the, that side that he's facing. He's calm. He's clear-headed here. He's very articulate in the way that he's bringing out this message, even as the rocks are crashing his body. That's an incredible thing. And these are supposed to be dignified members of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, and they are out of control. They are in a rage. Why? Well, because some of the words that Stephen used when he called them stiff neck and uncircumcised and resisting the Holy Spirit and uh, your fathers killed the prophets and uh, you're the ones that killed Christ. That's really what it comes down to. These are words that cut them, that stung them, that came in sharply and bit them like a snake with venom. And oh, they're angry. It's like the Word of God that cuts between the marrow and the joint, marrow, the the tissue, the muscle. You know, it can go right to the very heart of things. And they're mad at the Word of God. That's really what it is. Uh, Would you say that they're furious? More than furious? And they're just like dogs growling here. And they're gnashing their teeth. They're screaming at the top of their voices loud as they can. And at the same time, they're covering their ears as he speaks. <laughs> just like a little kid. You've seen little kids, you know? You, you tell them something, you know? They don't want to hear anything you say. don't want to hear a thing about it. Do adults do that? <laughs> well, they sure were. People still do it today, don't they? The Word of God certainly can cause that. That's kind of interesting. I'm going to uh, rush ahead here for a moment. And I'm kind of uh, working through verses and kind of going back and forth, so it's not quite as verse by verse and word by word. But um, I said rush. Look in verse 57. But they cried out loudly. Here's at the top of their lungs with a loud voice, and covered their ears, and what did they do? They rushed at Him. Now, these are supposed to be significant leaders who you think, okay, at least they would be walking dignantly when this was happening. Now, they're running, probably with their robes on, judicial robes. (laughs) But that word is used in the Greek just like it is in the Gospels when Jesus cast out... Or you remember the, the demons that came out of the man and then the, um, the demons went into the herd of swine and they rushed into the sea. You remember that? Well, that's the same word as they, they rushed headlong into that. They rushed off into the cliff. And uh, so that, this is a mob violence. There's no justice here. There's really no judicial proceedings that have really happened. They they ask uh, what uh, what he had been doing and was he was he guilty of blasphemy? And so he just proceeded to give them the history of the Bible, you know, through the Old Testament, and gave them proofs through Scripture. And here they have rage and hatred. Now I think it's interesting. Look in verse 58 when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes. Now, 
you know, it's like you've got these robes on, you know, and you're not going to be able to do full justice. You're not going to do a complete job. You just you start taking things off, getting, uh, you know, get down to the T-shirt, you know, and then start firing the rocks. Because you want to be able to throw as hard as you can, as accurately as they can. They're serious about this. I mean, when you see somebody, you know, all of a sudden they start disrobing, they're getting ready to do something, you know. And that's that's what's happening here. And they, so it was at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we know what he's kind of been doing, and this really launches the uh, pretty big-scale persecution around Jerusalem and Judea. And there's Saul. So we get introduced to Saul right there. That's where we see him mentioned first here. And so you just kind of want to stick that in your mind a little bit. He's in really, uh, I think, a hearty agreement with what's going on. There's no doubt about that. And, of course, uh, you look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says it, doesn't it? Hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's how serious these guys were. So uh, this is a great day of persecution which begins with Stephen. Saul began ravaging the church like a wild boar coming into a vineyard. That's what he's going to do. He's going to rip to shreds many of the believers. He's going to go to houses, from house to house, drag off members of families who profess Jesus Christ, going to take them to prison, both men and women. There will be deaths out of this. Many of them were put to death. You look in chapter 26, verse 10, and what is so amazing, This is the one who's in charge of all of this. I mean, he has the zeal to do it. Now, isn't this just like God? Isn't this amazing that he'd take a man like Stephen and let Paul kill him and then turn Paul around after he becomes a Christian later? In the meantime, he allows him to kill people in the church. This is the man we know so well in all of his epistles. Oh, I had a two-hour thing on it. Bob, somewhere there, if you want to hit that again or something. Yeah, it's automatic. The times we live in. You could time your fans. <laughs> I guess that's what, uh, that's what the Cardinals need to do with their fans when they get kind of dead and they need to get them going. You know, they time them right back up and get them going. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, verse 10, And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, who knows how many, many, having received authority from the chief priest. Now, he was there that day when the chief priest did their thing. He was there, wasn't he? But also, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So there's... That was in chapter 26. Acts. I'm sorry. Yeah. Acts 26.10. So Paul is just telling on himself. That's what he did before he was a Christian. You think it's all the grace of God? This man would have continued to do what he did. All in the name of God, of all things. That shows you that the religious people can hate God as much or more than atheists even. They kill furiously. 
Saul, um, in verse 11, look at this, same chapter, 26-11. And as I punished them often, often, in all the synagogues, Christians are showing up in the synagogues, they're going there, I tried to force them to blaspheme. That's just the same trick the Pharisees and the leaders tried to do with Jesus. Tried to force Him to blaspheme, right? Or they had charges of blasphemy. And being furiously enraged at them. That's, that's Saul. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. How much rage can you have? Where do you think that came from? I think this is definitely satanically inspired with the, with the hatred. The boy talking about Paul's mind being blinded. You can understand why in 2 Corinthians he would write that passage. And boy, was he blinded. And then God's going to blind him. <laughs> and then open his eyes. What a picture of what God does. Because Saul didn't have a thing to do with his conversion, did he? He wasn't looking for it. He was doing the opposite. And so he, he described his own behavior as furiously enraged at them. You know, it's kind of funny. When a sinner hears the Word of God, there's a conviction there. But he should be, we'd like to see them broken with a repentance, wouldn't we? Having a godly sorrow a true repentance and, and a changing, come to faith in Christ. But there's also a hardening of the heart, isn't there? And you can think of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. He hardened his heart, but yet you'll find the passages in there where God hardened his heart to go hand in hand. He's responsible for his own sin. And uh, he, he just Pharaoh kept getting deeper in rage. Saul... And of course, we we know that the high priest, all the leaders, became deeper in rage. But others like Saul also repent. Who did repent? He got harder at that time. But God then can come in and soften the most hardened heart. Incredible. I think God is definitely on to something here. He takes out one of His great men of God, one of the great testimonies, one of the great witnesses, and seemingly let Satan win and Saul win, but we know what's going to happen. Satan can use deceit. He can use persecution like this up front, or he can come back and cleverly design ways that are underneath that don't look like things that Satan would do. He's very cunning. And what he can do the best is make Christians adopt worldly values. He has no trouble with with the world adopting worldly values. They already have that. But Christians who have been converted like comforts. They like to feel good about themselves. And, uh, matter of fact, they will preach about how to use God for your personal well-being and happiness and getting your pocketbooks stuffed. (laughs) That makes people want to be drawn to them. 
Satan can use those kind of things, thinking that you're going to get rich if you give money to this particular ministry that is not really preaching the Word. And so, uh, comfortable Christianity, but once Christians start speaking out boldly, once Christians start living a Christian life that is seen and can make an impact, sometimes even get friendly fire from fellow Christians, but definitely can get fire from the outside. People can suffer for it. It goes with the territory, doesn't it? Everyone here who's a Christian has had it some way, in some way or manner, if uh, not for any, anybody else, somebody in your family. I've heard all of you, and I, so I, I know that there's been different things there that you've dealt with. Um, you say, well, why risk it? I'd just rather live a comfortable, quiet life, just kind of sit in the, you know, easy place. It's comfortable. I don't want to raise any problems. And so, be quiet and don't do anything. Who wants to be a target for Satan's bullets? You know, arrows are flying around. Why do I want to do that? You know, I'll, I'll just cause a ruckus if I say anything. Well, there's the second point. Those who suffer for Christ actually are assured in their faith and know that He is always present. He is a faithful God. He is present there, even though it may not seem like it, but we know He's there and we get grounded more and more in Him and we realize that He is desiring the best for us even though it doesn't seem like it. It, it, uh, it assures us. Hey, wouldn't you think it would be far better to die with Stephen under a hail of rocks that are coming at us than to die peacefully in the midst of worldly comforts surrounded by family and then to hear, Depart from me, for I never knew you. That would be scary, wouldn't it? A lot of comfortable, casual, and I put quote Christians, not true ones, but you know they're they're very comfortable, and they will hear that one day. Well, that's the point too. It it definitely is a warning for Christians, and we should desire. I think this whole story right here, not that we might be put in the same situation that Stephen is, or we could. You never know, but. Uh, I think Stephen is is a is a model for one who stands for Christ, and uh, wouldn't we like to be like him rather than somebody that just kind of backs off things and is weak? We want we we, we desire to be somebody like a like a Stephen. Well, he had suffering all through the New Testament, didn't he? Sure did. Yeah. So all the things that are brought along in our lives, if we can go through that in a way that can bring glory to God, He does honor that. Uh, I want you to look at something. In verse 55, 
Look at the Trinity here. Hey, take out those. Uh, what do you say, Bob? These are the the Trinity spectacles. Oh. What do we What do we call yeah, that? The, yeah. yeah. The <laughs> triangle glasses or something. The triangle glasses. Yeah. But being. Yeah. Well, well, this is what we see here in, in just one verse or so. But being full of the Holy Spirit. That's one. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God, which would be speaking the Father, and Jesus. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit. Right there. You see a triune God. He sees the ascended Jesus. I think this is amazing. God is like peeling back the glory for Stephen to be able to see. This had to be one tremendous sight. Now, not this, that this is going to happen to you if you get persecuted or to happen to anybody else. It could. God can do that. But it's not a standard thing. But He allowed Stephen to look into that and see that. And I think that this statement is um, rather significant because the triune God is involved here. Stephen is awed by everything that he's seeing. And... He says in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the who? The Son of Man, and catch this, this is the second time, standing at the right hand of God. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But he calls Him the Son of Man. Jesus usually called Himself the Son of Man. You don't see other people calling Him the Son of Man. He did. I think that's rather significant. In the book of Luke, Luke records it so much, and that's why the book of Luke is considered to be showing the humanness of Christ. In John, you see the deity of Christ. Matthew, you see the kingly Christ. Mark, you see the servant. That being Christ. Christ is the king. Christ is the servant. Christ is the man. Christ is God. And uh, but in Luke, so often he says, "Son of man," standing at the right hand. Uh, of course, he says, "Stand the right hand of God." So he uses that. I think he knew the Old Testament very well. And he knew this Messiah. I think he was very well informed. And uh, this is the very blessed one. And, you know, you have to think of Daniel, the book of Daniel, Daniel, Daniel 7, for instance. Um, and Jesus even quoted from that, claiming to combine his person with. The prophetic words of Daniel, also in Psalm 110, verse 1. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is where you get that. Son of Man, Psalm 110, 1. Uh, I think you get the idea of the deity of Christ involved. Yeah, Bart. Yeah, we're almost there. Yeah, can you hold on? Can you stand up first? I'll tell you when you can sit back down. 
No, you're hurting tonight. I'm sorry. That's pretty cruel. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, we, we have to get there. We can't leave here tonight without that, okay? I'm not sure. Okay. I think it should have hit these men with full force that Jesus was exactly who He had claimed to be. <laughs> this is the Son of Man. Um, and also, Stephen's understanding. F.F. F. Bruce, who wrote some great commentaries, he points out, and I think it's worth thinking about, I don't, I don't really know, but what he says is kind of interesting. He points out that Stephen's understanding of the exalted one, Jesus being exalted as he is, seems to be even more advanced than maybe even the apostles at this time. As, as he grabs the, the Son of Man, the, the Daniel passage, this is dealing with Messiah's sovereignty. Uh, this is, is, is the king here. And embracing all nations without distinction, as you know, you think of uh, in uh, other uh, the Old Testament passages. So the presence of Messiah at God's right hand meant that there now was an access to God. No longer do they have to go to the the temple. No longer do they have to go through the priest, the animals. They had direct access, and Stephen is looking right at that that access that he has. Uh, it's it's immediate. It's heart satisfying. Uh, boy, that obsolete temple ritual that had been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, and now it's opened wide. Open up the gates, right? Yeah. There he is, and he sees this with his visible eyes. Now, about the standing. Normally, the Scriptures say that Jesus would be sitting at the right hand of God. Right? And because the work of the priest has been done. Our redemption was done at the cross. And when the priest did that, he accomplished the work he could set down. In the temple, tabernacle, the priest never sat down because it was never accomplished because there was always another sacrifice. If it was the last sacrifice of the day, it would just start over again tomorrow. And you'd have them all day long. And then all through the year. And then the next year. They could never sit down, but Jesus sits down. The work is done. It's finished. And now, we have this strange saying of Stephen that he saw him standing. And I think, as... um, most commentators say is that Jesus is welcoming him home, standing there, saying, "Come on, is that you know you're coming on in." He was a faithful witness. Stephen was, and he stood for him. He gave this courageous man a vision of the glory of heaven. You couldn't see anything better on this earth as you're looking up through there. And boy, what a support that must have been as he went through a horrible way to die. You know, when they're, when they're picking up stones, uh, they probably couldn't wait, you know, and they just started ripping off their robes, getting the opportunity to uh, open up and fire some, you know, fastballs right at him, you know, and uh, rocks are going to pelt him. But can you imagine the comfort that he had as he's looking up there while this is happening? Uh, boy, the, the grace that, that God gives there. Also, it's interesting to think about this. Audrey, 
who stands in the courtroom. Now, what does a judge do? Does a judge stand? What about the... What, what, what would we call the guy that, that is just... Uh, he's been put in jail? Huh? What? The defendant? What does he do? Does he stand? Okay. <laughs> As the court is going on. Okay. Not until sentencing. Um, the people. Well, when the judge comes in, all rise. But then do they stand the rest of the time? No, they sit down. Judge sits down. Everybody's sitting down. Who's standing? The attorney. Bingo. The attorney. The defense counsel. And the prosecuting attorney. Something to think about. The judge... The Son of Man is your defense attorney. <laughs> the judge is your defense attorney. What better situation would you want your defend uh, uh, defending attorney? He's the one that's going to take care of you. He's the one that's going to judge. Uh, a defense attorney, if he's any good, he's going to make sure that the guy gets free, Right? The old, that's what his whole duty is, right? Wouldn't that be? Have you ever seen where uh, a defense attorney was the judge? Uh, that can't happen, can it? In this case, he's seeing the judge, but he's also seeing the defense attorney. I, I can think of First John. It's exciting to think about. He's there standing as our attorney. I guess you could say. Um, I might be getting kind of loose there, but I think it's quite uh, quite interesting to think of. In First John chapter, I think it's chapter 2, verse 1, isn't it? My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Thank you, John. And if anyone sins, which we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, is our advocate or our attorney, our defense attorney. <laughs> we can't lose. Yeah. And so who really, in Romans 8, it says, who can make a charge against you? Well, they may think they can, but they really can't, can they? Uh, well, I think of... Um, I think of the Son of Man with, uh, remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and then Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and one standing in the middle of them, that fourth man, he was the, or they said, like a Son of Man. But we tend to think, was that the pre-incarnate Christ? Well, uh, He will be with you to support you. The Son of Man is the heavenly judge and He will welcome you into His presence in heaven for eternity. That's what Stephen is experiencing here. I think that is just amazing. Now, that brings us to the third point. When we suffer according to the will of God, not because of something that we brought on ourselves, but according to the will of God, we can entrust our souls to the faithful Creator. 
we can entrust our whole being, ourselves, to Him when we suffer according to the will of God. As that rock, that first rock hits Him, as other rocks hit Him, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's yelling out loudly. He's getting pelted by now. Stephen, words just like they come right from the cross. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. C.H. Spurgeon had something really good about this. He uh, had written Stephen's death, um, a sermon. He pointed out that Stephen's death was full of Jesus. And we'll go through, uh, uh, this is really quick, quick brief outline of, of, of his sermon. And you've got it down there. It's Jesus seen. He sees Jesus. Then he invokes Jesus prayer. He trusts Jesus. And then what does he do? He imitates Jesus by his words. The way that he dies. Stephen looks into heaven. Had a literal vision of the very splendor and majesty of this amazing glory of God. He is seeing this. And you know what? He's seeing his way out. The escape route. He has the escape route. The escape route is right on up. <laughs> Out of something that he knows he's going to, he's going to go to a much better place in a few moments. It's like that river in Pilgrim's Progress at the end there. Ah. The big glorious castle. That's right, that, that beaming little. Yeah. But he had, they had to go that's down the, into the river. Yeah, and that's where bringing to the gate. That's a beautiful yeah. spot. Yeah, I'm thinking of the cartoon there. But <laughs> yeah. I've seen pictures and such. Barb. <laughs> What's that? Well, I think Peter says sometimes we can bring on it ourselves or something that would not be for the glory of God and it, it would be uh, some kind of sin and consequences that come out of that. Now that's that's a kind of suffering that we bring on our own. That is not, And so the will of God, of course He's going to be in control of all things. But I, I, I think the will of God here is involved. We're just being obedient to Him in whatever way that He puts us in our life at a particular time, um, we know that God is in that, don't we? Does that make sense? Uh, he gives us options. You know, sometimes we make a choice and it's not necessarily, you know, you could go right or you could go left. Sometimes it may not necessarily be any kind of a, a sinful choice that we make. You know, it's just that, of course, 
in I'm thinking of First Peter. Of course, most of the time, the suffering that he's talking about here is maybe some kind of suffering they have because of our just a straight witness, but just living it out, just going through painful things in our in our lives. We know ultimately a sovereign God definitely is in control of that, and if it's good to know that we're in the will of God at that time, even though you know we're starting to lose patience, but yet we're still trusting in Him. That's being in in the will of God. Yeah. looking up, if you have the Sanhedrin looking up, do you think they're looking up into heaven? I think uh, it's been said that they uh, probably would have been seeing the ceiling of the council chamber. I don't think the Lord is letting them come in. They're hard-hearted skeptics and God is not really in the business of revealing His secret heavenly glory to ones who are hard-hearted. They couldn't see it anyway. They would deny it. Um, for for a lot of us, we may not necessarily see the thing that uh, Stephen saw just before he died. It may be like in First Peter one eight and nine. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, like the joy that he had, and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So as we live here, we may not see some of those things that. Uh, some maybe see, but we still trust in Him as we live by faith. Another thing, uh, that that's Jesus seen. Here's Jesus invoked. He calls upon the Lord Jesus in prayer, doesn't He? Uh, you know, and recognize the full deity of Christ. Uh, Spurgeon wrote this in that sermon. Uh, Dying Christians are not troubled with questions as to the deity of Christ. Dear friends, Unitarianism and they were battling with that back in the 1800s there, may do to live with. Yeah, you can live a good life. Unitarianism is really, it's not really supernatural. It's just about being good and such. Um, But it will not do to die with. That's a pretty good quote, isn't it? If you're a Unitarian, that's not, what do you have to look forward to? In, in, In their sense, at least for us anyway. At such a time, we need an almighty and divine Savior. We want the God overall blessed forever. So Stephen called upon Jesus and worshipped Him. And then he finishes up, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He invoked Christ and no one else. He's our merciful, faithful high priest. So he went to that, he saw that high priest. So when we suffer, because of our faith, we can call out to Him. And the third one is that Jesus is seen trusted here. Um, and 
all the time that he's suffering this violent, painful death, and then he dies with a supernatural peace, and and he, he falls asleep in the arms of his Savior. That means his body dies, his soul goes to be with the Lord. We know that, but his his body falls asleep. That's the word for you know he died there, right in the presence of the Lord. Jesus suffered a violent death on the cross to remove the sting of death. And so, you know, we know we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And so we have to trust Him daily. We were talking about trusting Him all through the things we go through. If if it's not maybe for specific words and a witness just going through life, you keep trusting Him. And then we talk about Jesus being imitated. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Basically, he's saying the same thing. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And that prayer was answered in the conversion of Saul. Do not hold this against them. It's a prayer of a man free from bitterness who had humanly every right to be screaming and yelling at them. He was perfectly innocent. And he practiced, I believe, all before this, probably a life of forgiveness. He knew what that was, a gracious forgiveness. And the last point of all this, Jesus always uses suffering of His saints for a greater purpose. Yeah, this one man is taken. But what's the worst that can happen to him? He dies and goes to be with the Lord in glory? There's a greater purpose. Tertullian. I think Dwayne will probably know what I'm saying next. What did he say? You guys catch that? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is the first one. We get it recorded. We see exactly what it was all about. We get to see hard hearts. We get to see the exact opposite of one who was filled with God's Spirit, filled with His Word. He was bold and he was ready to do whatever God's will was and he did it. And what an unforgettable effect that this made on Saul, later called Paul. And Stephen says, okay. He doesn't know what's going on really, but uh, there's Saul over there. And he gave up his life and another one will come in and take that place in a huge way. What an effect. Because from there on out, Paul never forgot what he did. He called himself the what? The chief of sinners. I think we all probably could say the same thing. But, uh, boy, he was killing Christians, persecuting them. Close this out. We need to keep two things in mind. If Stephen was... Was he indispensable or was he dispensable? He was not indispensable. That was Stephen. We can't even compare with the witness that he gave and what he did. Wow, if he takes me out now, he did that with Stephen. That's okay. It's all right. He can easily raise up others to come in and take that place. And he has done that all the way through church history. There have been some who lived a very short time. Their fuse went out quickly, but boy, did they speak for God. Others lasted a long time. The Reformers usually lived to be about 55. <laughs> that was about it. You know, they'd die of gout and stuff like that. 
It's Christ who builds the church. I'm just a small part of whatever He's doing. Each one of you is just a small part of what He's doing. Yeah, in the 20s, I believe. He was. That's right. Who would have thought? And and that whole tribe came to Christ with her witness doing that. And you say, take these missionaries, these men missionaries, take them right out. But God has a greater purpose. Wow. mysterious God. We're learning about His ways. I think this is the exact opposite of the way that most humans would think that God should have worked. You've got an outstanding young man here. Let him live to be in his 90s and let him be a great witness. That's what we would have done. But God does things so much differently than the way the human mind works. But as we see a little more clearly here, we can say, Oh, this is the way that God thinks. This is mind expanding. Now, this could be very offensive to a lot of people because, well, if I do good, then God will bless me and everything will go my way. That is not found in Scripture. I mean, that can happen. Here's success in Joshua. You meditate, read my word, meditate upon it. That's success. Who knows what will happen with that? But it goes far beyond what our little minds and our bodies think the way things ought to be. It should expand us realizing, oh, God has a greater purpose than what I see. It's not just a little closed up, a little closet scene. I mean, and I think this chapter is very significant to open up to us what's going to happen with the rest of the book of Acts. And of course, Saul will dominate from there on. Paul, that is. Um, the, the Lord is mindful of your service too. So one thing, we're not indispensable, but number two, He'll never forget. He's forgotten your sins, but He will never forget about the service that you do. Things that people never ever see. People never ever hear. They don't know the prayers that you've had. They don't know the ministry that you're doing with different people and you're quiet about it. Maybe you don't want people to exactly... You're not trying to be a braggart, you know, and whatever. But there are little things that everybody's doing. Some people are doing big things. And you know what? God 
has an account of those things. He will reward us. And so even a cup of cold water given His name, in His name, like Matthew 25, uh, it, it counts in eternity. Isn't that good to know? He does use rewards. By the way, what do we do with those rewards? We just cast them back. That group called Casting Crowns. <laughs> you know, He rewards us and it's like, you get all the glory, Lord. But... Um, these kind of things should keep our minds from being discouraged and keep us from losing heart in the battle. It's a long war. It's a marathon. This thing just seems to keep going. It's hard. It seems like there's a lot of losses and ups and downs. It's all good if you're His. He's working it out. Working it out for good. So... There it is, the great sermon that uh, that he had. You mentioned John Bunyan there, Bob. Twelve years in jail because of his faithful preaching. He uh, wrote that at the day of judgment, he said this, a smile or a kind look from Christ shall be worth more than 10,000 worlds. Like that? A smile or a kind look from Christ should be worth more than... That was... Our uh, John Bunyan, who did Pilgrim's Progress, just realizing that, remember, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep that great day in view every day that you live. Keep looking through that way to escape <laughs> out of this world. Right. Be faithful. Be faithful. Bob, can you close this thing? Heavenly Father, uh, do works in us that uh, you would be glorified. Help us to uh, stay close to your word that you would be filled with your spirit. And uh, Lord, help us also to be less earth-mindful and earthly-bound that we would long for your presence, long to be in your presence, long to be with you. And we know that that will be our the result of uh, what you do with us in this life. And Lord, help us to be ever-mindful that uh, this world's not our own, and, and uh, we uh, we would just desire to be with you. And in the meantime, Lord, if we would be close to you as we can, knowing that you're never going to let go, and that we would just know you better and learn from you all the way along. Thank you for the path and the journey to your glory. Thank you. Thank you.